I hope all of you guys are doing great. Uh, today is Sunday, October 25, um, and it is a good day to be alive. I want to give thanks to all those who helped out with worship. Thank you all. You guys are talented, and thank you for leading us to be in the presence of God, which is something that we do not take lightly. Um, Yes, children, you guys are dismissed. Go with Sister Reyes. Um, they're going to have a wonderful time as we continue to talk about the, the kingdom. We're going to talk about the message of the king, the message of the king. Last time we met, we heard about the announcement of the king. Today, we will hear about the message of the king. If you are standing, feel free to take a seat um, so, we learned last time that the Israelites, those who came um, from the line of Abraham, the Jews, they were called Jews because they came from the area of Judea during that time. That's where they lived. They were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting the king to come with his kingdom. They were waiting under Rome uh, for their king and deliverance. And Jesus came. But the Jews didn't expect him to be the Messiah who would bring the kingdom. Graham Goldsworthy said, while Jewish expectation focused on political solution to the problem of foreign domination, Jesus was the kingdom in person. So they were expecting this king to come to defeat Rome, because they were under this oppression from Rome. But instead, the kingdom came through the person of Jesus. But the Israelites didn't see Jesus as the promised one. Je nevertheless, Jesus preached the message about the kingdom, even when the Israelites didn't see Jesus as the promised one, as the Messiah. In fact, the teachings of Jesus are a hallmark of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Edward Losey puts it this way. Jesus' word is not separable from the one who speaks it. To understand Jesus, to know who he is, it is important to understand his word, his message. Today we will spend time looking at a number of teachings that Jesus taught regarding the kingdom. And we're going to look at the kingdom through the Gospels. Let us begin seeing the message of King Jesus by looking at the teachings Jesus said about himself. How did Jesus view himself? That's a question that we will consider first as we enter this sermon. And I think we saw today... With Elida's reading, when she read from Matthew about the transfiguration and also about his prediction concerning his death, that he would refer to him as the Son of Man. The most common title that he used for himself was this word, these words, Son of Man. If you have your Bible, feel free to go with me to Matthew 9, 4 through 6. Matthew 9, 4 through 6. And it says this. 
in Matthew 9. And I'll be reading from the NIV, 4 through 6. It says this. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself here, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Earlier in the series, we, were, we read from Daniel 7, when we were talking about the prophets, the, the heralds of the king. And Daniel, within Daniel 7, Daniel had this vision about the Son of Man, the one who comes to the Ancient of Days, who is God. And he is the one who receives the kingdom. Well... Jesus believed that he himself was the son of man of Daniel 7. This person who we read about within the Gospels is the one, Jesus Christ. He is the one who will have triumph through the power of God. Jesus will have triumph over the earthly kingdoms. In addition, Jesus has come to judge the vile deeds of man Because the Son of Man has come, the kingdom of God has come. And in the passage that we just read, Jesus teaches that the Son of Man also forgives. Here, Jesus, as the Son of Man, both forgives and heals. We see a man that was paralyzed. And he says that what is easier, to heal a man or to forgive a man? Which one is easier? And he did both. He both forgave the man, forgave the sins of this man, and he also healed this man. Forgiveness and healing were signs that the kingdom had finally arrived. Here's another passage that talks about the Son of Man. Matthew 20, 28 says this, and this is pretty interesting. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, And to give his life as a ransom for many. You might be thinking, wait, wait. Isn't the son of man supposed to come in power and glory? But here the son of man appears to be a servant. And as a servant, the son of man, Jesus, gives his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would give his life so he could purchase us from the darkness, from the kingdom of darkness, and transfer us to the kingdom of light. I have uh, put up, prepared a video for you guys, and this video does a wonderful job to explain more in depth about Jesus and the Son of Man and also about the kingdom. And I would like us to check it out in this moment. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man, what does that mean? 
Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, who's jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives, and he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. 
Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device, but Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, and then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast, and as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. Awesome. Yeah, so I love how... Uh, if you want to look up that video, it's called The Son of Man. It's on YouTube, and it is by the Bible Project. And I love the videos that they make, and some of their videos, like watching it over and over, gives us a sense of what the Bible teaches. Um, sometimes we may get confused because of the language there, but I do like how the Bible Project visualizes, makes it accessible for us, and uh, I, I hope that was helpful. So... As the Son of Man, Jesus taught about the kingdom by talking about his, his identity, his Son of Man identity, and he also taught what it meant to partner with God. And he did it by talking through analogies, through parables. C.H. Dodd said, the parables are perhaps perhaps the most characteristic element in the teaching of Jesus Christ. Maybe when you think about the teachings of Jesus, you think of him saying these wise sayings. These parables of Jesus do sound wise. These parables convey complex ideas through concrete pictures. At its simplest, this is what C.H. Dodd said, the parable is a metaphor, a simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. Like Jesus tells a parable, we feel like we get it, but the more we, we think about it, the more we discover that there is much to learn. Parables seem very easy to understand, but you can really spend hours upon hours just thinking about the meaning about one parable. These parables often start like this. The kingdom of God is like this. Jesus would talk about the kingdom by using everyday images through these parables. C.H. Dodd concluded, the kingdom of God is intrinsically like the processes of nature and of the daily life of men. And C.H. Dodd, he was a theologian, a very popular theologian of the 20th 
century. Jesus showed us through the parables that every, everyday things can tell us things about the kingdom. In Matthew 18, 3-4, Jesus sees the kingdom and the everything nature thing that is children. We see children in nature every day. Here is what he says about the kingdom and children. Matthew 18, 3 to 4 says this. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus begins this discourse by saying, truly I tell you. Another way to say this is amen, which is the Greek of truly. And then he says, I say to you. Jesus loved saying this whenever he was going to say something of utmost importance. In this case, Jesus was saying that this was of utmost importance. Not only do you need to Welcome, children. But you are to be like a child. Jesus tells us what he means by being like a child. He says that it is to take a lowly position. You would think that the greatest would enter the kingdom. But no. Jesus says that only those who have childlike humility enter the kingdom. Those who are the littlest of people, not the greatest. As children, we are not to rely on our strength, but on our heavenly father. We are to submit to him and to one another. Jesus sees that his ancient culture saw children as insignificant and unimportant. Children would Trust others and rely on others. The, these attributes were not viewed in high regard. But Jesus said, you are supposed to act like children. Leon Morris, in his commentary, he's, he had some ideas, some comments on the book of Matthew. He said this. Adults like to assert themselves and to rely on their own strength and wisdom. This attitude is impossible for those who wish to enter the kingdom. Be like children, as Jesus said. Maybe we do not see the significance of what Jesus said because we live in a Western world. But in first century Judaism, children, children were not that important. Children were not in the affairs of men. They could not fight, they could not lead, they could not communicate well, and they couldn't start a business. They were small in the first century world. Yet, Jesus is telling us to be like these children. You would think that God's kingdom, the best kingdom, would have the greatest. You would think that it would have people who overpower others or outsmart other kingdoms. But Jesus repeatedly shows us that his kingdom is different. Inasmuch that to be in a high place in the kingdom, 
You must be in a low place. You must be a humble person. Leon Morris, he also says this. The humble person is the greatest. For it is the humble person who truly relies on the wisdom, love, and grace of God. Like children, we have everything that we have because of our heavenly Father. After talking about children and how we are supposed to be childlike, Jesus says that whoever welcomes a child in his name welcomes him. Whoever welcomes the least of these welcomes Jesus. Jesus challenges us to treat the lowly figure of the child with the respect that would come naturally in relating to Jesus himself. This sounds strange for us. Treating a child as if you're treating Jesus? If that sounds strange to us, imagine how the first century audience felt, especially with their low view of children. While there have been advances in how we view children, especially because of the Romanticism period and also because of the laws against child labor, there are still many ways, many areas whereby we do not treat children as if they were Jesus himself. We do not welcome them as a culture when child sex trafficking is so prominent. We probably all agree with that. And we should do everything that we can to stop all of these evils. But we also need to practice it within our homes. We need to welcome our children as we would welcome Christ. John Nolens correctly said, A welcome to a child is one is in a hidden way extending such hospitality to Jesus himself. I remember years ago while I was talking to a local church leader, he was trying to help me, and I am sure that he had a good heart. But he said something so that was so counter to what Jesus is teaching here. He said, Daniel, you know, Jesus said that if you treat the least of these, you will be blessed. Now, imagine, imagine this. Imagine if you treat the greatest well. If you're going to be blessed mightily by God, if you treat the least with love, imagine how God will bless you if you treat the greatest mightily. I know this church leader was trying to help me treat people with great names, with great respect, but I felt like this person totally missed what Jesus was teaching. The world already treats the great and the popular with great respect. Jesus knew this. But as Jesus taught, for the follower of Jesus, the priority must be to receive and welcome the world's little people. We are to be like children and we are to welcome children as if we were welcoming Christ. Jesus also said that the kingdom in nature is like a seed. Look at Matthew 13, 31 to 32. 
He says this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is, is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. During the time of Jesus and his disciples, there were groups with mighty numbers which worshipped heathen gods. All this talk about the kingdom, the talk that Jesus was giving and about the kingdom growing and all of this optimism seemed very unlikely because there were great numbers in other religious groups. But as Morris said, Jesus teaches them not to be hypnotized by size. These tiny beginnings would grow into something greater. By far than any of the religions found in the disciples' contemporary world. Jesus taught, just as a small seed, a small mustard seed, would grow to the largest tree in the garden, the kingdom will likely, likewise start small. The kingdom started with Jesus and the 12 disciples. It was smaller than all of the religions that were present during his, his time. And yet, surely, but it was slowly, but surely, the kingdom of Jesus outlasted all of the religions of the Roman Greco period. And it grew to have more influence than all of them. Like a shoot, like a sapling, as Isaiah the prophet had said. This is what Daniel M. Doriana said. The point is this. The word of God, the work of God, typically begins small. Churches are small. Students' ministries are small. Whatever you want to do, it's going to start small. There's going to be opposition. It will look at times like it's about to collapse. But there will be a great climax. This is why I am not hypnotized by numbers or by what the world is doing. Yet there is great evil, but there was great evil during the times of Jesus. And yet the kingdom still when God is the gardener, we should trust that the kingdom will grow into the largest plant, just like the mustard seed. There are so many other parables, but we will focus on one more. The parable about the ten virgins. If you have your Bibles, we'll go there together. Matthew 25, 1 through 13 uh, if you could go there with me. It's like the middle of your Bible, um, more towards the end, actually. And um, like right here. But it says this, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. It says this. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time 
was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going, are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to shut to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, the foolish. And they said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. The kingdom is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. To us, 21st century individuals, people, this picture seems odd. But to the first century audience, this was a, a typical picture of a marriage. There were these ten virgins who appeared to be part of the bride's party. Maybe like our modern day bridesmaids. They waited for the bridegroom to come with lamps. But the wise ones were ready by taking oil for their lamps, extra oil. When the bridegroom arrived, both the foolish, sometimes some, some translations translate it as stupid, and wise virgins went to meet the bridegroom. And they said, and it said within the scripture, let us now, beloved, discuss the five wise and the five foolish. They wished to go to meet the bridegroom what is the meaning of to go to meet, to go and meet the bridegroom? So, to go, they were supposed to go, and Augustine tells us that they were supposed to go with all the heart. What this means is that they were eagerly, eagerly awaiting his coming. They were supposed to go meet the bridegroom with great hope, but the foolish virgins, the virgins who had not prepared themselves by having extra oil with them, ran out of oil. Thus the foolish maidens asked the wise ones for oil, but the wise ones said no, since they only had enough for themselves. To go out, to go without oil, this is what John Nolan said, without oil supply is a piece of pure thoughtlessness. You wouldn't think of doing this. You would always be prepared. Not simply a failure to plan for any contingency. You see, they were supposed to welcome the bridegroom, but the foolish ones were unable to since they did not have sufficient oil. Thus, the foolish virgins went to get their own oil. In the middle of the night, could they even find oil, buy oil at this time? Probably not. But they did go. And the, when they went, the door to the wedding banquet was closed. It doesn't even matter if they did eventually find oil, since the door was already closed. Leon Morris 
the commentator of Matthew, commentator of Matthew said, that the door was shut indicates that at this wedding feast, at any rate, there was a time to join the festivities, and those who were not there when the time expired were totally excluded. The foolish ones eventually came to the closed door, knocking and yelling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But the bridegroom said, truly I tell you, I don't know you. This thing, these words, hurt. A bridegroom saying to the bridesmaids, I never knew you. But if the bridesmaids were true bridesmaids, they would have been ready. They were supposed to be ready, but they weren't. They were foolish. Therefore, they missed out on the celebration. According to Leon Morris, Jesus is not telling a story about something that actually happened. He is warning people of the dreadful fate of those who know that they should be watching for the coming of the Son of Man, but who do not do this. We are all the bridesmaids in one sense. We await the bridegroom of the church, who is Jesus Christ. Yes, he has come already, but he has only launched his kingdom. One day, the Son of Man will come to fully consummate the kingdom. We await this beautiful day when the earth will be once again heaven on earth, when there will be no more chaos, but only peace. As we wait, we need to be wise. Be prepared. That's a wise thing to do. Don't be foolish. Don't think that we have enough oil. No. We should prepare. We do not want our Savior to tell us that he does not know us. We will go telling him we were telling him that we, were, we are one of the bridesmaids, one of his disciples. But if we're not prepared, he will say he doesn't know us. If we are not awaiting him and doing the actions that we're supposed to do, if we're really expecting him, he will say he doesn't know us. For if we were truly his disciples, we would have been prepared. As the bridesmaid did not know when the bridegroom would come. We do not know when the kingdom of God will fully be here, when it would consummate here on earth. As Jesus repeatedly said, the disciples need to be ready. Jesus is the Son of Man, the one who has come in glory to receive the kingdom. He is the one that God has prepared a kingdom for. He has the power to forgive our wrongdoings. He was the awaited one. He is the one who will destroy and judge the evil monsters, the evil kingdoms of the world. Because he has come, the kingdom has come. In addition, he shows how the kingdom works. It works different from the world. He shows that, yes, he is glorious. The kingdom is glorious, but it is glorious through service. And it is glorious by him giving his life as a ransom. 
Jesus purchased us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light. He showed us a new way of life. In this new way of life, you must be like a child. Additionally, you must treat children as you would treat Jesus. Jesus also taught about the nature of the kingdom through everyday activities, through these parables, that it's like nature in the sense that it's like a mustard seed. It starts small, then gets big. We have seen how big it has gotten through Christianity. And we saw that we need to be ready for the culmination of the kingdom. For when the fullness of the kingdom arrives... I have this question for you. Are you preparing for the king as the wise virgins did? Or are you as the foolish ones did? Are you not preparing? Are you like, I I will depend on Jesus, be humble and follow his ways as, as we prepare, as we get ready for the consummation of the kingdom? Or are you not putting any thought into it? I pray that you may enter the wedding banquet instead of the bridegroom saying to you, truly, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Jesus knows his disciples and his disciples will be prepared for his return. Are you his disciples? Are you preparing for the coming of the Lord? If you are preparing, then you are like a child who is depending on our Heavenly Father and who treats children as if they were Jesus. I do not tell you this to scare you, but I tell you this to consider your place. So many Christians think that they are secured, but are they really Have they really considered their relationship with God? Are we really preparing ourselves? Are we living the way of Jesus? I pray that you would see life differently and see Jesus as our king, the one who comes in glory. I pray that you'd be able to say, I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his, I'm no longer my own.